talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Want to be a hero if you decide to take off your mask, throw it in your pocket, and not the ground? Here's Scott Thompson! There you go, where's the bell? I lost the bell, hang on, give me a minute, give me a minute, I'm not ready. Hang on, hang on. I think I have the musical I gotta have more cowbell. <laughs> I'll give you, hang on. Uh, I got the cowbell when I don't have fever. I got a cowbell. Prescription. It's more cowbell. I got a cowbell. I just don't have any rhythm. I got a cowbell. I just have no sense of timing. No sense of musical timing. No, no, you're hitting it on the upbeat, on the down. Eh, What do you do? Hey, it's Friday. Good afternoon. It is three oh nine. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board, and in the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Uh, heading into the weekend, and again, uh, masking regulations allowed to expire as of uh, Saturday. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't have to stop. You, it doesn't mean you have to stop wearing one. If you're in a situation and you think, ah, put the mask on. I mean, it's common sense, uh, but it's different in other parts of the province, so the sense of having it mandatory uh, across the whole province just doesn't make any sense at this point, uh, so say officials. Well, I guess it depends on, uh, you, you can sure find some officials that say, yeah, we should be keeping it on, we should be keeping it on. Uh, but again, it's up to uh, our judgment now, I guess. All right, uh, other news, the unemployment rate at an all-time low. Uh, but again, uh, what does that mean for us? Uh, for those of us that uh, are getting jobs, it still is incredibly expensive to live. Uh, the uh, interesting other story coming out of the United States, other than January 6th, which we'll get to, is um, the U.S. are dropping their, uh, some of their airport restrictions. So we'll see if that leads uh, Canada to be doing the same sort of thing. So uh, we'll see as uh, time goes on. But as the summer uh, continues on and people continue to complain about uh, the backlogs that are going on in airports, specifically the major airports, and the major airports uh, like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and such uh, are seeing increases. However, uh, smaller airports, Ottawa, Calgary, what have you, uh, seeing a bit of a decline. And, and again, you know, everybody's been asking this question for weeks, like, what the hell is going on? And you get like five different answers depending on, you know, the five different people you ask and, and who they work for or who they don't work for, who they're for or who they're against. Uh, but anyway, uh, another spoke in this wheel other than what we were talking about the other day with not enough staffing are still too many stages of protocol. Uh, and now that we have a full load of passengers, you can't do the same sort of screening that you were doing in the height of a pandemic when no one was traveling. So um, uh, now they're talking about because all of the secondary airports were close to international flights, they're all coming through major hubs now. So flights that normally wouldn't come through Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver are now going through those cities instead of the Calgary's, the Edmonton's, or the Ottawa's or wherever uh, to take off some of the pressure on that. And then they're, you know, jumping on, uh, you know, connecting flights to wherever their smaller city is. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that's got to be done here. And uh, it's time to uh, to take uh, um, uh, an overview look of all of this and, and how they can speed it up. And, and uh, it's starting to cost money now for uh, the economy. All right, let's talk about January 6th. Uh, this, of course, the, I shouldn't laugh, um, uh, you know, the situation where they tried to over the, the right-wing Trump supporters tried to overthrow uh, the election results. And of course, when that didn't happen, they wanted to try to do it manually and physically going onto Capitol Hill. And last night, and I only saw portions of this, but last night, man, it was bizarre to watch all of this over again uh, and certainly put in a, a form of a slick presentation the way that it was. And, you know, you have to wonder, it's been like a year and a half. It's kind of like the pandemic. Um, as many reporters have said, your opinion's already baked in. You either think one way or you think the other way of all of this. So I'm sure, I'm not sure what all it is going to do or change, uh, but it certainly does sum up what, and this is like the first of six, uh, but here's what Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent, had to say about what uh, we all saw, including the Americans last night. 
It was a day of unruly chaos that threatened centuries of American democracy. As a crowd, ginned up by lies of election fraud, sought to keep Donald Trump in power. You'll never take back our country with weakness. In the wake of the violence, Democrats raced forward in a bid to seek accountability. I think they're treating this in a, in, a, in a manner where they're treating it with the appropriate level of gravity for what happened. All right, that's a report from uh, Reggie Giacchini and, uh, in Washington and the hearings that are ongoing. And I, I think the next one is Monday morning. So, But the first one's starting up in uh, prime time. I guess sort of comparing this to Watergate and trying to get the same sort of uh, uh, public interest that uh, everybody had uh, back then. And you got to think if, if people were uh, interested in what was going on uh, back then in Watergate, then y- you certainly have to think they're involved or certainly paying attention to a, a coup to overthrow the government and the country. Uh, the pieces that I did see, and you may have seen these, uh, I found it fascinating when they interviewed uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr and he said uh, this was all BS. He said he and he told Trump that he said the, the election was not uh, arrived at in, in a false way. It was a legitimate election. He doesn't see any evidence. I uh, didn't see any evidence that would change the outcome of the election in any way. And he said that's why he bailed. He, that was about the time he got out. He said he wasn't really ready to uh, to support this theory. And then they went to a clip of Donald Trump's daughter and 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 came out and directly asked her like what what were your thoughts on on the attorney general's testimony and and what he thought of all of this and in a roundabout way she basically said well she agreed with him uh fascinating hearing reports of of the donald today saying well his daughter was not really following what was going on which i find hard to believe considering her and her husband were <laughs> We're in the White House on any given day. So uh, fascinating to watch. Not sure how many opinions it's going to change uh, or if it just adds more theatrics to the theater that we've already seen. But we'll be following. All right. uh, Bulldogs back in action tonight in Windsor. Game four of the OHL championship. And, uh, you know, before uh, we got to Windsor, man, it was um, it was I don't there was no loss. I think 22 games, uh, a winning streak. And now, obviously, uh, a little bit more difficulty as uh, right now at this point, Windsor ahead in the series two to one. Let's bring in Reed Duffy, play by play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. He's with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, always good to talk with you, and it's uh, great to be back and great to be set for another game day. So, uh, obviously, the the Bulldogs were on a tear prior to this, and and we talked about that at length. A little bit more uh, issue with Windsor here. Where's their heads? Uh, where What's the feeling in the room as uh, they trail 2-1 to one in this series? You know, I think everybody's good, Scott. I think um, it's one of those things that's not supposed to come easy. And no. in this final, it certainly isn't. And you get punched in the mouth a little bit, and then it's not about taking that punch. It's about how you recover from it. And from what I've seen over the last few days of practice this morning, skate this morning, uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs look like a composed, confident group heading into game four tonight. Um, they're up against an opponent who is, is clearly the best opponent that they've faced off with. But I think they've got another level to get to that they haven't shown Windsor their best just yet in this series. And I do think that there is a bit of urgency to get to that point now, down 2-1, and, and I think you're going to see them start to get to that point. And Windsor, they got the pedigree, a lot of history there too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, multi-time Memorial Cup champions. You look up in the ceiling of the WFCU Center here in yeah. Windsor and, and all the banners that hang for the legendary players that have been a part of the Windsor Spitfires organization, uh, whether it's Marcel Pronovaux going way back or more recently guys like Taylor Hall. Uh, it's it's a tremendous organization. They're here for a reason, and they're here so often for a reason. And you've got two brilliant organizations going head-to-head. It's kind of what the OHL, I think, really wanted to see out of this final. And Bulldogs getting more honors, this time in the head office. That's got to keep uh, got to keep things positive as well. Uh, with all of this good fortune, uh, many will say it's the Bulldogs to lose at this point. Uh, do, you, do you feel that they feel the pressure, or is it a case of now they have to rise to that next level? Now's where we really see what they've got. You know, maybe earlier on in the series, Scott, more, more so the, the feeling the pressure of coming in. You know, when you go 12 and 0 through the first three rounds, obviously people are you know going to have the eyes open and saying, yeah. well, "What's you know what's going on here?" And Windsor showing that they are a really really good hockey club. 
And Steve Stales winning that GM of the year, he put this team together for a reason. And we saw how good they can be through those first three rounds. They've got to rise to the occasion now. This is their opportunity. And a lot of talk about that amongst the players. And it's time for us to rise to this occasion, to rise to this opportunity and show Windsor why we went 12-0 through the first three rounds. Boy, they got a lot of support in that barn as well, don't they? Yeah, it's going to be sold out here tonight. And I know we're trending towards a big crowd back home on Sunday for Game 5. So as the games get more important, the crowds are getting bigger, they're getting louder. And isn't that what this is all about in the end, Scott? This is just a whole heck of a lot of fun. Exactly. And a reminder for everybody to get their tickets for Sunday's game uh, to get back here and uh, support the uh, support the dogs, certainly as much as uh, Windsor is supporting their team. So 7 o'clock tonight, uh, tonight, puck drop. And can we see this on TSN tonight? That's the great thing at this point. Yep, TSN uh, is the coverage on the television side. I've got it over on the audio network as well. So uh, you're, you're covered any which way you want to go for the, uh, the, the remainder of the finals and on into the Memorial Cup. All right, Reed. good luck uh, in the home stretch. We'll see what happens, and uh, best of luck to you. Have fun tonight. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Reed Duffy with his play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, right now, Windsor ahead in the series 2-1, and uh, game four tonight in Windsor, 7 o'clock. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking about this earlier on, uh, but we decided to bring in Eric Alpar on uh, on this because he knows everything about music, publicist, music commentary, and a very uh, storied background in the music industry. As Will and I were talking earlier on, uh, as uh, Will was saying, Eric knows so much about music, man. Uh, well, Stranger Things, uh, speaking of, uh, the TV show has uh, set in the 80s, and this song is part of their soundtrack and it is now charting and actually doing better now than it was when it was released back in the mid 80s and and such as we told the story earlier on but let's bring in eric alper publicist music commentator he's with us now eric thank you for the time i hope you're well welcome to 1986 where (laughs) kenny Loggin danger zone is back on the chart dead or alive musical oh yeah that's for the brand new artist kate bush (laughs) and that's for you're right top gun and the other one was musical youth past the duchy my daughter was asking me about that why is it back in is it also on stranger things it is. Um, Dead or Alive's You Spin Me Around has entered into the Spotify Top 100 streaming song. Pat the Duchy is currently number 86. Kate Bush, number one on the wow. worldwide Spotify list. She's currently number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. The best she's ever had in her entire career and sits nicely at number one on the UK charts. And, you know, this is what happens when you have a world that is consuming music through social media and music streaming is that when somebody hears something they don't have to hope that the record store has a copy of it they don't have to save up you know twenty dollars for a cd or a vinyl record they can just go and stream it when they want however many times they want to and kate bush is will be forever cool so this is good stranger things just might be the hottest record label in the world right now wow and you spin me around what a great song that was from back when holy smokes um so uh it's funny because the kids were watching this show and my daughter starts you know singing running up that hill she's running up the stairs and you know it's the cool things since sliced bread right now and my wife's yeah. quick to point out well it's been on my playlist for 20 30 years blah 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah blah so uh, what does this mean for kate bush who i, I think it, it was like uh, and you know this more than me it's like not, uh, top 30 i think it when it, it charted way back when now it's when i remember reading an article it was broke the top 10 now it's number one what does that mean for her does she still get something uh with this or when you sell like we're seeing many artists sell the rights it gets distributed this way but do they get reimbursed for this no they don't once they sell their music catalog like we've seen with uh, bruce springsteen or bob dylan um that's it you will never see another penny again kate bush still owns all of her publishing and still all of her music rights so she is going to be getting a large deposit in her yeah. bank account uh and we've seen this before you know when it, it it's funny that your wife said that because your wife might have had it on their playlist for 20 years 
but this the mark of approval of coolness of a show like stranger things is everything yeah. you know when yeah. tiny dancer was first released the elton john song in 1972 mm. it did all right it hit number 41 in america back in 1972 but when it was in that movie almost famous yeah that's when it started to explode again it hit the top 10 for the first time it was back on elton john's set list he, for years he never really played it because it was never really all that popular but it took cameron crowe the director to make that song cool again and put it in the movies and it finally went gold and platinum really quickly not long after that film came out for the very first time so sometimes it's that it's that touched by the hand of god you know yeah. that makes things really popular so again, I was having this discussion with the kids and, and talking about how, you know, if you sell your rights, you'll get that money up front and then you, yeah. that, the, 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 whoever buys it will take that and put it on every platform, put it in every t yeah. TV show, movie, whatever they commercial they can. And, and obviously it will start to chart again, but you won't get the money for it. This time, Kate actually does get the money for this yeah. because she has not sold the rights. So the question is, is it worth selling your rights? And just getting the check up front and then something like this happens, or is it worth hanging on to it in case something like this happens? That's a really tough question because I know a lot of artists' egos are so massive that they actually get jealous when they find out that so-and-so made a deal for yeah. $50 million for their catalog, and they want that too. And so part of it is a little bit of ego. Part of it is that um, you know this solidifies their music for the next 50 or 100 years as mm. much as they possibly can um, because those companies who buy the Springsteen or Bob Dylan catalog, they're going to want their investment back. It doesn't yeah. get you a great table at a restaurant so you know if growing up in the 80s and 90s if you were sick of seeing baby boomers music all over the place just wait until <laughs> all of these deals start to get pressure and you're like how come i'm going to be hearing you know springsteen every day yeah. for the rest of my life and the fact is that that's what the music industry is going to be pushing because they have to make their money back so any idea what she would make off something like this? And I mean, I don't know, it's hard to transfer old to new, uh, charting versus streaming, but any idea? Anyone take a stab? Yeah, so every million streams or views that you get on YouTube or Spotify, it's roughly about $4,000. So, and that goes to the rights holders. So it could be, you know, part of with the record label, or let's say it's all Kate Bush. So if the streaming song now has 386 million, then you would just do 386 times four, which would be about $1.3 million just from mm. the last two weeks alone. Yeah. And then you end up with, you know, this is going to go on for a long time because I don't, I don't, you know, if I'm stranger things, I'm using this song in the second batch of the last part of season four that comes yeah. out in a couple of weeks. Cause you've already got the world's attention on it. Mm. Why not just, you know, keep driving it home. But uh, yeah, you know, even songs like unchained melody when it was in ghost, yeah. ghost um, yeah. the righteous brothers made way more money in that than in yeah. 45 years combined, because it was just, you know, the single was available. It was on a CD. You can buy it on a cassette. And so all of these things, things kept kept going so sometimes the way that people consume music affects the popularity of something you know going back to tiny dancer from elton john the fact that itunes was finally available back in 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 2001 2005 that allowed people to listen to the song and immediately go and find it rather than yeah. trying to find a record store back then uh, stranger things and they have happened as we see the old <laughs> is new again uh and reissues in various platforms uh platforms eric elper with us music publicist and commentator eric as always thanks so much for the time be well you too have a great weekend we'll talk soon. you too when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml all right. Uh, great news is here we are talking about concerts that are going to be in the fall. Uh, and the great thing is about the summer and where we are with this whole pandemic thing, uh, things are really starting to open up and get back to normal. And another indication of that is the Barton Street Festival. And talk more about all of this. Julie Freeman is with us, Barton's, uh, Barton Village Festival organizer and with us now. Julie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks. I hope the same for you. So give us all the details. What's going on this weekend? 
Uh, well, okay, so uh, Barton Street East is going to be closed from Victoria to Wentworth. Um, the street will be closed itself from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., but the festival's on from 11 to 8. And it's going to be fantastic. We've got uh, 35 vendors. We've got local businesses who are going to be selling food. We've got uh, three separate live music stages with just a really fantastic lineup, music for every taste. I think people are going to come down and discover something that they didn't know they loved. So uh, getting through a pandemic, all of that, obviously put a lot of this stuff on hold. How excited are you to, uh, it looks like, get a, uh, a full-blown festival going this year? Oh, we are super pumped. We're especially excited. We're going to have a lot of kids stuff as well, which is something that we couldn't do kind of um, in our sort of previous iteration as an open street festival. So, um, yeah, we're excited. Everyone was really pumped to get their applications in to come out to be vendors, and I think we're going to have a really good crowd. How has this grown over the years? Well, it actually started as a, a pretty small little sort of grassroots yeah. festival. Um, and then before the pandemic, there was upwards of like fifteen to 20,000 people um, coming down to Barton Street and enjoying the community throughout the course of the festival. So um, I don't think, uh, you know, it's not going to be quite that big, but we're really excited to build it back up. It's such a vibrant community. There are so many amazing local businesses in the area that we're excited to feature. So I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be great. What was the objective when you first started doing this? We really just want to bring some attention to a great area of Hamilton. I know that um, Barton Street sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap, and there are some uh, great businesses. There's awesome restaurants, there's shops, there's services. There's so much going on down there. So we really want to uh, to help promote those businesses and to foster a sense of community in what is a very, uh, it's a really vibrant neighborhood. You bring up two really important points there. Uh, once One being the sense of community that it instills with just having these sort of events going on, uh, as well as drawing attention to the local businesses. What do the local businesses say about about all this? Let's start with them. Uh, so far, people are really excited to be participating. They're excited for, you know, a lot more foot traffic and for people to discover where they are. Um, you know, folks that wouldn't necessarily be on that street might get drawn over for the festival and, and see some really cool places. We've got um, vintage shops, there's dog groomer, there's a record store, there's there's all sorts of new businesses that um, have grown in the area since, you know, just pre-pandemic or during the pandemic. So I think they're really excited to, to uh, showcase themselves to the city. And the whole city is growing. It doesn't matter what end of it uh, you are uh, on. That's for sure. I mean, all of these yeah. little areas are, are, are getting uh, are perking up. What about the sense of community? To, you know, for the people that live there, that, that shop there, that this is their home, this is their hood. What does it mean for them to be able to go out? Nah, this is kind of cool. We got our own little street party going. Yeah, I think there's a sense of pride that comes with that sort of thing. You know, when people are proud of their neighborhood, they want to promote it, they want to take care of it, they want to invest in it. So um, it just sort of creates this big circle where the, the neighborhood benefits in every way. So I think it's definitely a lot to do with, with pride. All right, so give us uh, the details when it all starts, when it goes to what we need to know. Absolutely. So it's uh, Barton Street East from Victoria to Wentworth, so between the hospital and the fire station. It's on from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. And throughout the day, we've got um, different uh, activities. We've got yoga in Woodlands Park. We've got live music all day long. We've got a uh, kids entertainment area, like an art area. Um, we're going to have, you know, balloon giveaways, a scavenger hunt. So whatever time it is between 11 and 8 that you're coming down, you're going to find something to do. Can we find more information online? You absolutely can. Uh, if you go to bartonvillage.ca slash festival, you will find uh, a map and a list of events and everything you would want to know. All right, Julie Freeman with us, Barton Village Festival organizer. It's back tomorrow, the Barton Street Festival, uh, starting uh, tomorrow morning and then going throughout the day into the early evening. And uh, find out more, check it out on the website. Julie, good luck with this moving forward and to the village. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Here we are. Um, you know, you know, you really can't say the global pandemic is over. We're living with it, I guess, because it's still around. Uh, but obviously, life is opening up again, and we certainly remember the incredible, tremendous strain this put on our healthcare system and the great uh, men and women that work in it, and uh, and and still very much fatigued by all of this. But slowly and surely getting back to normal, and we remember one of the uh, the big issues with the, the the hospitals and, and COVID-19 and such was the delaying of elective surgeries and procedures and such uh, that weren't uh, necessarily deemed a emergency. And slowly, uh, we are getting back to uh, doing those again. Let's bring in Leslie Gauthier, Vice President, Clinical Support Services and Surgery at Hamilton Health Sciences and is with us now. Leslie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Happy Friday. 
Yes, happy Friday to you, too. So uh, where are you? Where are the hospitals? Where is Hamilton Health Sciences with all of this now? Um, I don't want to say normal because who knows what that is now, but where are where is the hospital and in, in its, its need to play catch up on all of these? Well, so probably the first really important message that I share is the hospitals, and we've done a great job through the pandemic of continuing to make um, care for the most clinically urgent people needing surgery. Mm -hmm. So whether those are emergencies that have been presenting through the emergency department or patients that surgeons have seen that said the surgery needs to be done right away, we have maintained that service throughout the pandemic. So where we're focusing now is to continue to maintain service to the patients who are most clinically urgent, but we're also opening up OR time and resources that we can start to care more for patients who have been on the wait list with, I'll say, more deferrable surgery. We don't like to use the Mm -hmm. word elective because we realize surgery needs to happen. It's just we're now really focused on those cases that have been able um, to wait a bit longer. And we know this was an issue before COVID, um, and now obviously a global pandemic complicates all of that. Any idea, Leslie, how long the list is, how long it's going to take you to get back to where you were? So there's lots of issues that impact that that question, Scott. So I'll start with, we do know how many patients we currently have waitlisted. So we have just over 6,000 adults waiting for scheduled care surgery and 1,400 children. And what's really important that people understand is those are the patients that have sought care, been to their family doctor, been referred, and have been accepted for surgery. What we really don't have the same line of sight to is how many people that have been out there with a really sore knee, but they haven't gone to see their family physician, so they're Mm. not yet determined they need to have their knee you still there, Leslie? Can you hear oh, me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry, you just dropped out there for a bit. So, yeah, there's still lots of people who perhaps had issues, injuries, whatever, uh, during the pandemic that haven't even been there yet. What, is the issue here just finding enough staff to do this, or is it physical space, operating room space, as you as you put as you put it? Yeah. So, our our biggest pressure right now is actually the support of our anesthesiologists. And across Mm. Canada, there's a shortage of anesthetists. So we're working very hard with our chief of anesthesia to recruit more anesthetists to the Hamilton Health Sciences, as are lots of other hospitals. From OR nursing, right now, we're in a a fairly good place. We we have OR nurses who um, we can schedule to help work to care for these patients. At HHS, we have um, some... ORs that are empty that um, haven't been used that we're going to um, use to help in our surgical recovery plan. We're also building a new OR at the Hamilton General, one OR theater, it's called OR 15, that we'll have ready for the, for the fall. And there's, we're using West Lincoln in a very unique way and adding some hours there. So it's not one solution. There's multiple things that we're trying to do to be able to care for more people. What have uh, health systems, uh, hospital systems, what have you, what have we learned over the course of this pandemic when, you know, my goodness, you're put in a situation where uh, overworked and just this thing, this wave just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and delays and delays and various things. Um, What have we learned as far, because clearly you've been nimble enough to keep the important stuff, really important stuff moving. What do we learn from all this? Scott, I would say the first thing that I'm so appreciative of is the overall commitment of our teams, like the dedication of the frontline nurses, the surgeons, the anesthetists, our clerical teams. It is People in Hamilton should be so proud of what these teams have done to try and continue to support surgery and their commitment to work together in a different way. Um, Mm. You can appreciate when we were ramped down to only doing the bare minimum of what was essential, people sat in a room and they decided together who most needed care. It it was really, truly impressive to watch how the teams came together. Likewise, I'd share with people the hospitals across our region. We've sat at the same table as the Niagara Hospital, St. Joe's, Brantford, Joe Brandt, Norfolk, everyone trying to look as a system 
how does the system care for people in a better way? So we've had lots of learnings out of just people coming together, common problem, trying to deliver the best surgical care we can. You were talking about the need in certain areas. Is there opportunities for people who want to get into these industries now? Oh, tons of opportunities. So, um, you know, all of the the nursing programs, Mohawk, the Mohawk McMaster, McMaster University, across the province, um, you know, there's opportunities for people, for the traditional health professionals. We also have seen some opportunities and we're working to really um, focus on some jobs that were really um, scarce resources. We are doing work around anesthesia assistance. We're doing work specifically training nurses, um, x-ray techs, MRI techs. There's, there's tons of opportunities and different jobs for people to think about, like really unique jobs like being a person who's going to monitor brain activity in the middle of neurosurgery. Hmm. It's a, it wouldn't have been thought of 10 years ago. And our educational institutions are really partnering with us to try and make sure they can offer programs that are going to meet our needs. Some opportunities being created in all of this. Leslie Goche with us, Vice President, Clinical Support Services and Surgery at Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, the pandemic obviously putting delays on some of these, now slowly getting back towards where normal was anyway. Uh, Leslie, thanks so much for everything all of you have done at uh, Hamilton Health Sciences to keep us all safe. It is very much appreciated. Be well. No, thank you. Great weekend to everyone listening. Take care. Leslie Goche with us from Hamilton Health Sciences. Sciences. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We uh, certainly know even on this side of the border what happened down in Washington January 6th. And uh, obviously a committee has been formed to figure out what the heck happened. And last night they held their first public hearing on primetime TV and and, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Uh, very slick, uh, the Hollywood producer, Hollywood-type producer, uh, adding the flair to it. And this is the first of six, I understand. Uh, the next one is Monday, Monday morning. Uh, does this have any impact? Uh, most people's opinions already formed, no matter which side you're on. Let's bring in Catherine Ross, professor of law at George Washington University, and with us now. Catherine, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very well, very good to talk about this. So your thoughts on what you saw last night? Again, uh, this was, this happened a while ago. Opinions have been formed. Uh, what's the objective here and anything change? I don't know if anything will change. It depends partly how many people who have an open mind actually watched or take the time to find out what happened if they didn't watch it live. And that we just don't know uh, because... Fox News didn't cover it, Hmm. and people have so many options um, to watch streaming stuff or play video games these days. They're not necessarily all tuned into the same thing. But I hope that a large number of Americans who did have open minds um, began to listen to the story. And I thought that the committee did a very effective job, not just what you called a slick presentation, which you're, you're right, but slick to me doesn't, you know, it's a presentation that was calculated to grab people's attention right. and keep them focused is the way I'd like to put it. Because American audiences, modern audiences are a little bit spoiled. And so it was wise not to walk us through live testimony, which can be a little bit tedious to lay yeah. out and follow. I thought they did a very good uh, job of summarizing their overall arguments that they'll be presenting in the coming weeks and that those arguments are backed by voluminous evidence, much more evidence than they have time to share with us in the hours available. Um, A couple of themes that they made clear that I thought were really important, and people have been focusing more on some of the factual nuggets. So let me draw out a few of the themes. Um, First, the committee is not limiting itself to the events of January 6th and the immediate days on either side. It is taking very seriously its charge, which is to examine the facts, circumstances, and causes of the January 6th terrorist attack, they're calling it a terrorist attack, uh, and interference in the peaceful transfer of power. And that means they are going back months before January 6th. A federal judge uh, in an opinion issued just this week found that this plot 
which they called the January 6th plan, uh, began as early as December 7. And there is some evidence suggesting that it really started uh, right after Election Day and possibly even before that. Uh, you could point to the debates when President Trump told the Proud Boys to stand by. Yeah. And we saw video last night of Proud Boys saying, you know, we took that seriously. Our membership ballooned. Everybody wanted to participate. So um, that that is important, that they're going to give us a big picture. And they are connecting all the dots from the guys on the ground and the Proud Boys and the people who traveled with body armor and and uh, aggressive weapons uh, to Washington for that purpose, all the way to the top. And the committee made it clear that they have their eyes on the president himself. Mm -hmm. And they also have a lot of evidence about the people high up closest to the president. And so when, when people talk about should Trump be indicted, let's not forget that he has a whole bunch of high up co-conspirators who should also be indicted. Uh, you know, I thought it fascinating by Trump. I thought it was fascinating too to see the testimony of uh, former Attorney General uh, Blair and and, Barr. and talking uh, sorry Barr and talking about how um, uh, you know what he thought of it and, and why he stepped away saying that there was no proof that uh, there was any evidence uh, of the, that it wasn't anything but a legitimate election and even Ivanka Trump Trump's daughter start uh, talking about Barr's comments and saying well you know yeah I agree with that and the president Ivanka's I guess testimony. I thought was very powerful. Yeah. She said she respected the attorney general. And when he said that, she took it seriously. And she was ready to tell her father, no, you lost. And Barr said, this is bullshit. Yeah, now, yeah. like a lot, and he may just talk like that all the time, but it seemed fairly strong to me. Um, but, you know, like many other high officials who are now willing to say something, it would have helped if he had written a more honest letter of recommendation of, of, of resignation hmm. or told us, blew the whistle. Yeah. You know, this, these people have all been incredibly irresponsible. And just yesterday, we learned that Betsy DeVos, who was Trump's secretary of education, resigned shortly before Biden was inaugurated because she could not convince Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment, which is a provision in the Constitution that allows the cabinet to seek to disempower the president when he is incompetent. And one form of incompetence is delusional insanity. What about so Donald Trump's... What about Donald Trump's reaction to this? I even uh, heard uh, that uh, he sort of blew off uh, Ivanka's testimony. She wasn't really following it, which is bizarre because her and her husband right. are greatly involved in all of this. And, uh, what and about she was his right reaction? There in the room, yeah. and she kept coming in yeah. and saying, "Like, Dad, please do something. Stop it." So right. what about his reaction to this and supporters? I mean, we've seen what we've seen. There's going to be more of this. What about reaction to the base and from Trump? I think the real Trump base is pretty impervious mm. to facts and evidence. And um, they are so deep into alternative reality and conspiracy theories. Right. And they seem not to receive much information from sources outside their um, bubble. What about so, the rest uh, of the Republican Party, though, Catherine? And we're limited for time here. What about no, the rest of the Republican Party? What do you think the, the blowback is going to be, the fallout? Well, so far, the Republican leadership has really circled the wagons around the fantasy that this was no big deal. But we have to understand the reason why they're doing that. And this is something the committee is also going to reach. This coup d'etat, which the committee is now calling it a coup, and that is correct, because what the goals were and all the mechanisms they brought to bear. This coup is not over. It is ongoing. And the Republican leadership and the Republican rank and file down to the local level are all plotting and acting, changing laws, changing how elections are administered, trying to elect state and local officials who have an influence over how elections are conducted, mm all of whom subscribe to the big lie theory, 
and all of whom are going to do whatever they can. And they're not making a secret about it. I'm not, I'm not, you know, libeling anybody or slandering anybody here. They tell us what they want to do. They want to steal the next two elections. And so we are in at a moment of continuing crisis for our constitutional democracy and Americans need to wake up to that and be prepared to vote and to take the, I'm not talking violence here, I don't do that, but to on the, on the pro-democracy side, to take all the steps that are possible to take to preserve our democratic system. And in the face of a party that has made it clear that all the Republican Party, all they want to do is stay in power. And this is a, 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 an unprecedented moment. So that is also something that we're going to learn from these hearings. Catherine, I'm going to have to cut you off there, but we will have you back for sure. Uh, We will continue this discussion. Catherine Ross with us, George Washington University professor of law, commenting on the first public hearing of the January 6th uh, protest. Catherine, thank you very much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. I look forward to talking again. We will. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've talked a lot about housing over the last little while. Uh, Obviously, a low supply, a high demand, uh, interest rates on their way up, bidding wars that were going on through the pandemic and such. Uh, and it seems as, as soon as, you know, we raise the rents or sorry, raise the rates and perhaps cool the market down, we present another set of problems just to another segment of the population. And what if you were one of those people or couples or what have you that purchased a house in the last six months or so when, uh, obviously there were lots of bidding wars going on and, and just as rates were, were, were going up, where, where are those people, uh, now that prices have seemed to stabilize and drop down a little bit and interest rates are heading up let's bring in frank clayton senior research fellow center for urban research and land development toronto metropolitan university and is with us now frank thanks for the time again much appreciated oh, i'm happy to do it scott so uh, have we created another problem by trying to solve a problem here what about those that purchased homes like six months ago well okay what we have to understand is when they bought them if they bought in the last six months uh, they were they had to were subject to a, a, a mortgage stress test. Right. Uh, in other words, could they uh, afford uh, this house if the mortgage rate was five point two five percent rather than say three percent or whatever they got in at? So there's some room there for people to uh, who, who should they shouldn't be stressed out too much uh, because of the of the stress test that was allowed. So I mean, if interest rates go up, a, you know, two or three or four percentage points, that's a, that they'll be in problems. What about what about the reports we're hearing that you know uh, just the other day I heard a uh, stat uh, Halton's sale prices are down fifteen percent. I was talking to a realtor and said you know you really can't gauge much by that. Are, are people worried that what they paid a certain price for and not be it may not be worth that next year? Uh, well, that's always a risk people take when you buy. To, you know, everybody was warning a few years ago, the last couple of years that you know market was out of control. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so some people will be worried. I, I think the the big worry will be if uh, if they uh, tap into a five year mortgage, uh, will the house be worth a lot less five years from now when the mortgage uh, you know uh, pay you know payment is readjusted? Uh, because the mortgage might be based on a uh, on a lower value. Um, uh, but that's that's uh, that's in the future. I would I don't think I don't think people should be too worried right now, unless you bought at the absolute peak. And I agree with you about the real estate agent that. Uh, uh, average prices don't mean a lot uh, because they can, the mix of housing can change in any month, uh, so so it affects the average. But no question, I think prices have come down somewhat from the, from the peak because they were just going nuts. But then again, Frank, you know, like you said, uh, you know, there still is a supply issue. And even uh, if they might dip uh, 10, 15, 20 percent in the next month or two or six months or so in the next year, that demand is still there. That house is going back up. Demand is still there where, you know, if we have the immigrants coming in, which is all it looks like we will be having uh, in the greater Toronto Hamilton region, we're going to need a lot of housing, like 40 or 50,000 units a year. So, uh, uh, we, we for new housing to accommodate and so there's going to be pressure on the market and particularly with uh, municipalities like Hamilton trying to uh, uh, 
stop any kind of uh, growth outside the build-up urban area onto what we call greenfield lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamilton's the only the, the culprit there right now, the only one, but the village municipalities tried to do that. And, of course, we have a lot less housing for uh, the low-density housing for people to buy, and prices will certainly go higher. Is this discussion changing, Frank? I mean, at the end of the day, people want results, and I know you can't build a house overnight, but people aren't going to wait 10 years for this. Uh, no, no, they, 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 uh, well, <laughs> uh, you know, if it's not built, they have no choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, other than changing their, what, what they want is some second best or third best solution, like moving into apartment, you know, a townhouse rather than a single into an apartment rather than a townhouse and go farther out. And that's what people have been doing. You can only do that for so long. So you, you've got to come up with second best solutions often. You've got to stay in a smaller apart, rental apartment for longer than you hoped for and, and that kind of thing. People will have to, they will adjust if the, uh, the houses, it, it, the, the, you know, the low density housing isn't built. Uh, but it, it's not their preferred uh, way of living. Do you see the need? Do you see? Obviously, there's a big push to to fill infield lots within boundaries, and you can certainly understand that. But is that will that make much of an impact? Will that will that provide the supply that we need? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, the supply, I mean, you can supply, a, maybe if you take the whole region, you might be able to supply a, f- a few hundred units a year through infill, you know, uh, people yeah. tearing down a house and putting three or four units on that uh, property, or even maybe it, if you go to the extreme, put a low rise apartment building of four or five units in, uh, or four or five stories. Um, uh, but, uh, no, that won't, uh, the, the, the numbers are too small. The demand is too strong and the, and the supply is too constrained. I mean, just look at Hamilton. I, I saw something recently where people were, opposing second suites and houses <laughs> yeah that's that's the most modest type type of intensification you can have and that's the what the cheapest type of the cheapest way to produce more housing quickly but uh uh if if there's opposition at the you know at the local level for, uh, for that the politicians are afraid of that then yeah. you know forget that source Frank Clayton with the Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about the ongoing uh, struggle to own a home in this country. Frank, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. So long. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have heard, uh, obviously, the uh, uh, the campaign is on to select a new leader for the federal conservative party. It's been going on for a long time. I, I can't believe how much interest there is in uh, any party in choosing their leader. And, and this is, you know, it's been a long uh, campaign. Uh, they will decide in, in September. Uh, but a lot of interest in this. And now even more as uh, there's been a surge in membership and the selling of memberships, which is always part of a leadership uh, convention and a leadership, sorry, campaign and, and, and such. So uh, we are seeing really high numbers. What does this mean? Uh, what does it mean for the party? What does it mean in the next general election? Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and was a speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. So what are your thoughts on the numbers that we're hearing uh, coming out of various camps? Obviously, obviously, Pierre Polyev is, is way out in front here, um, but numbers way above what we're normally seeing. What, what's your thought on all of this? Well, if we're just looking at the overall numbers, yeah, it's very, very encouraging. It's great to see numbers that are estimated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of over 500,000 or possibly over 600,000, as I've seen on a couple of accounts. I mean, there are a few candidates who have not released their official tallies. Like, for example, we still don't know what Jean Charest's total number is. We know that Pierre Polyevra is over 300,000, over 310,000 to be exact. Patrick Brown is apparently around 150,000. The smaller candidates are where they are. In the end, there's a lot of people who've joined up, which is great. There's a lot of enthusiasm. But the key is always the number of people you sign up. It's fantastic, and obviously it's to your advantage. But all candidates, no matter which political party they belong to, realize that during a leadership race, not everybody will vote. And not everybody Hmm. will, in the end, necessarily support you beyond the first ballot so you have to continue to make your case you have to get as many people out as you possibly can either physically or as we've seen in recent times virtually and ensure that whatever your number is at that you filed with the conservative party that you get something not necessarily at it but roughly close to it usually the assumption is that if you can get half or more 
of the tally that you put in, you've done very well for yourself. So is it safe to say if you sell the most, chances are you're going to win or not always so? Chances are you will win. There have been some occasions where that hasn't happened, but by and large, yes. Well, so what is the significant? Obviously, the significance of selling more membership helps you get the uh, the leadership. What does it do for the party? What does it mean for the next general election? You know, it's always difficult to say. Obviously, parties use the total tally, no matter who wins the leadership race and whichever party it is. They obviously use it to their advantage. They show that if they're the government, that it obviously shows solidarity of the government, strength in the government, confidence in the government. In the case of an opposition party or the official opposition, like the Conservatives, what they'll use it as is, look, look at the hundreds of thousands of people sign membership forms. There is clearly interest in the Conservative Party, frustration at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, frustration in the way Ottawa's handled things, you know, since 2015, during COVID-19, etc. They'll spin it, obviously, to their advantage. That goes without saying But for the Conservatives, they can look at this number and say that this is an extremely high number to come in for a leadership race. And it is. It's one of the highest ever recorded in Canadian history. And for them, it's a huge advantage going forward to show that the Conservative Party is a party not only to reckon with, which we know there have only been two major parties that have ever run this country, that being the Liberals and the Conservatives, the Conservatives in different guises and different forms, obviously, but that between the two of them, there's clearly a lot of interest now in the Conservative Party and even more, possibly, than ever before. Uh, obviously, Pierre Polyevra is the front, rubber, uh, front runner here. Uh, it looks like it's his leadership to lose at this yep. point, making a lot of noise about populist views. Some are finding him divisive. Uh, we've seen a Doug Ford win coming more to the centre. Will Pierre Polyevra change his his position as he run as he moves from say if he is leader of the conservative party to actually running in the next election will we see a milder kinder version or will we see more of that i know some people are coming out and saying that no what you see is what you get and by and large pierre Pauli ever is an open book you know i i've endorsed him as leader i endorsed him even a few days before he actually announced that he was running for leader i didn't know he was going to i was hoping that he would and i was encouraged that he did But overall, I think what you see mostly is what you get. At the same time, though, it is different running a leadership race or running in a leadership race versus running in a general election. The Hmm. former is something where you appeal to conservative party-based supporters, red-meat conservatives, right-leaning independents, right-leaning libertarians, etc., etc. The whole cornucopia of the political right is mostly under the conservative tent. Not everyone, but a large chunk of it. So you're obviously appealing in different ways to the various adherents of lower taxes, small government, more individual rights and freedoms, a more muscular foreign policy, um, trade liberalization, and whatever other issue that intrigues them. And there obviously are some social conservative issues related to you know, the family and otherwise that are obviously extremely important. When you go to the general election, it's a little different. You still have to appeal to those people, but you also have to broaden the base and tackle whatever topics there are of the day. So certain issues that you talk within your party supporters, yes, they're important, but you also have to look at national issues. How will you handle, say, international relations with the United States, with the European Union and parts of the, uh, parts of the world? How will you handle military conflicts if they ever arise? What are you going to do in terms of the deficit and the debt? How are you going to manage the Canadian economy on a grander scale? All those things matter, which means that you don't have to change the general theme of your messaging, as Pierre Pauli ever doesn't have to, but it means you have to add in other components and modify things slightly so that you speak not only to conservatives, but non-conservatives as well. Michael Tobe with us, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, National Post and Washington Times contributor, and used to write for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. We've talked a lot for about the last, what is it now? We're, I think we're up to about day 112 of the Russian Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, have talked about it a lot on this show. And certainly in its, um, say, first uh, week, first two weeks, first three weeks, now as we're hitting the 100-day mark, 
is interest starting to wane? Is Canada and the West losing interest in the war in Ukraine? Interesting uh, column in the National Post by John Iveson. Uh, As Canada sends junk to help the war effort, Canadians in danger of losing interest in the Ukraine fight. To talk more about all of this, Andrew Rosilis uh, is with us, fe- uh, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. Yes, I am indeed. How about an update here first, Andrew? Where are we in this? Has it stalled? Are, are we really just giving Ukraine enough to hang on and not necessarily not necessarily succeed? Where are we with this? Well, I think, first of all, on the battlefield, uh, the war has now sort of stabilized into a war of attrition in the eastern Donbass. And uh, it's becoming very much a, uh, an artillery duel with heavy attrition of forces on both sides, and and the lines are not moving very much either way. So that's the battlefield situation. The supply situation on on the West for Ukraine is that it's becoming more normalized. The Americans held a very important meeting about perhaps about a month ago in Ramstein uh, when the American Secretary of Defense convened a meeting uh, not, it wasn't a NATO meeting, but a, a, will, a, a Western meeting of those nations who are willing to give armaments to Ukraine. And in that context, this is a coordination group. And this is the most important organization right now, led by the Americans, that is looking at what do the Ukrainians need, who can supply what to them, and how can these items be brought into the, the Ukrainian supply lines brought to a training level within the Ukrainian forces, and then deployed into combat effectiveness. This is a very complex chain, and it's important that it's very well coordinated. The Americans are doing it. Canada's playing a very important part of all that. And when the prime minister was in uh, Kiev uh, a few weeks ago to open up the embassy, Prime Minister Zelensky told him that he regarded Canada to be amongst the top four donor countries to Ukraine, the Baltic states being uh, three of them, the United States, and then Canada. So I think Canada is, is certainly doing its bit. I, I understand what uh, what the Iveson uh, uh, article says, but that's a perspective. But I think in, in macro terms, Canada is playing its part, is part of that uh, the coordination committee, and it's a complex bit of business to get armaments from a variety of countries, all different types of armaments, all different types of ammunition, training requirements different, and get it into combat effectiveness. That's a, that's a very difficult proposition. What's the objective here? Is this just to give the Ukraine Ukrainians more to hang on to, longer to hang on? Or is the objective here to give them enough to win this? Yeah, well, okay, then we'll come back to that very interesting word you use, win. Another word being used is victory. And, of course, what does that mean? But we'll come to that. Mm. Now, the thing is that in in um, in present terms, the situation is stabilized. I mean, there, there, there's waves. The, Ukrainian, the Russians had this original uh, uh, operation to try to take all of Ukraine. That failed. Uh, then the Ukrainians pushed them back. There was a lot of momentum, euphoria on the Ukrainian side, thinking, you know, we're going to win, we're going to win. And they kept started to say that. So they dropped the peace, the peace negotiations that the last time they met was in Istanbul, at the end of March, that all went. And basically, the Ukrainians said, right, we're on to victory. Okay. And so then they pushed. But now that the Russians have managed to stabilize their positions. And, and we've got a grinding war of attrition. So that's once again, change the tempo. And Ukrainians are now saying, oh, no, we need a lot more artillery. We're starting to run other stuff. Yeah. So the question is, it's stable. Ukrainians would like to actually launch a counterattack, a, a massive one. They're, not, they're doing little ones right now. But they would like to do a massive counterattack uh, late this summer if they can get all the stuff together. So you, I suppose in a military sense, you could say that the object from a Ukrainian point of view is to utilize the Western armaments that are in the pipeline and are continuously flowing to a, to train up their forces, integrate these supplies, and launch a major offensive in the fall or late summer. Now, the Ukrainian objective, now we're talking about your victory thing and what, what's this all about. Ukrainians, they as their war aim, they have declared that their objective is, in terms of victory or winning, is the expulsion of all Russian forces from Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. Now, Zelensky has modified that statement somewhat by saying that 
a military assault by Ukraine in Crimea would be probably prohibitive in terms of the casualties it would take. Mm. So I think we can say that what the most Ukrainians feel, or the sense of the Ukrainian government, uh, is to actually launch an offensive that would push the Russians out of the Donbass. That would be probably where they would be satisfied in terms of a ceasefire of some sort. Now, there's no political uh, deal uh, in, the, in the offing at all. We're really talking about when would there be a ceasefire. And so a ceasefire when victory in the sense of expulsion of all Russian forces from Ukraine. Now, the Russian point of view, they, they have their view of victory right now, as far as we can guesstimate, is the incorporation of the Donbass uh, into into Russia proper. They, they used to talk about semi-autonomy for this region. I think in light of the fact that there's no prospect of a political deal, they're probably, they're, they're, well, the talk right now is they're going to just unilaterally move to, to put this kind this buffer zone, if you will, of the Donbass into the Russian Federation, as well as the area of Kurzhan, which is a port city in the Black Sea. That seems to be where we're going right now. Uh, you said a grinding war of attrition and how Ukraine needs more supplies. What about Russia? Can they just outlast Ukraine? Um, who will outgrind who here? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, the, the 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 good question. I do not have the answer for you, but I, what I will tell you is because we don't know war. The dynamics of war are sometimes very difficult to predict. But I will give you some 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 hypotheses. Uh, the Russians right now outnumber the Ukrainians in terms of artillery firepower. They outnumber the Ukrainians in terms of manpower now or people power. Now, in people power, the morale is on the side of the Ukrainians, uh, but the but the Russians still have numbers. And there is some there's an old saying that uh, quantity has a quality of its own. So in that mm-hmm. sense, it's difficult to call that one. That could go either way. Um, but the question is the industrial capacity of Russia. So if we look at their economy after the sanctions, then the metrics right now are suggesting they're not doing as badly as people thought they might. The Russian ruble is relatively stable. It's trading roughly as where it did prior to this war, before the 24th of February. Uh, Russian domestic industry is starting to move in and replace the Westerners who left their companies. So, for example... McDonald's yeah. uh, left all their stuff, and uh, it's it's uh, they're on the internet and now. We're seeing a logo of a new company that the Russians have, have basically taken over. Uh, uh, this McDonald's, well, well, McDonald's left there, and they may be next week opening up this new chain. It's not a hundred percent replacement of McDonald's, but they're starting to do something. In the automobile industry, France left the Lada, uh, yeah, Grad, and last. A couple of days ago, in fact, Lada announced that the first line, it's one line, it's starting to roll again. It's the basic model, but they have under Russian control now, they're starting to produce it. So these are small metrics, but they're metrics showing uh, that the Russians are doing better. They're not collapsing, I guess is what I'm trying to say to you. Uh, and and can they? how far can they go in terms of manufacturing their war stocks? Now, they have a lot of old war stocks. So people are saying they're they're cranking out T six they're bringing out the old T sixty two tanks. So this is all sixty mm. seventy stuff. Uh, they're they're bringing them into the field. They have some of these things, you see. Yeah. So they've got a lot of old war stocks. Can they produce the new stuff? They're not going to get the chips from the West. How many chips can they get from China? Possibly India. You know, it's it's a difficult situation. But we can say that war is probably going to go on for months, and some people say perhaps even years with different tempos. And anyone, and many would say the fact that it's gone on that long or even this long is a loss for Russia. Andrew Rizoulis with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, talking about where we are with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're right. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Cheers. Y- you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's joining us now from the Canadian Open, Scott Radley. Uh, Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, can you hear me? I can now. Someone hit a wrong button. Oh. I can hear you now. <laughs> so you're at the Canadian Open. What's that like? Oh, I was at the Canadian Open. I'm actually back now. But it's you know what? It's look. It's not as good as when it's in Hamilton. Uh, I was just but, about. That was going to be my very first question, Scott. Is is it, is it as good as when we're the host? Uh, no, and a couple of reasons. I mean, St. George's where it is in Etobicoke is a lovely course. 
but it's not Hamilton. I mean, honestly, Hamilton is, we are, we are, I mean, you and I are not members, but when we can go to the tournament here, we're spoiled with, with this course yeah. here and how beautiful it is. And, uh, so no, but I mean, look, it's, it's a great course and, uh, they have a, you know, it's like every year it's good. They do a great job. Cause when you consider what the Canadian open organizers and Brian Crawford, who's the guy from Ancaster who, who runs it, what they're up against with getting players here when you've got, you know, other tournaments and this thing over in London now, this new tournament to live. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it, they do a great job to make this thing as good as it is every year. So uh, do you think there's much uh, traction with this new league? Do you think this will change the PGA in any way? I mean, what's the, what's the, what are they talking about at the Canadian Open in regard to all of that? Well, I didn't hear I didn't hear hardly any talk about it, but I'll, I'll tell you, really? the, as I've been thinking about this over the last few days, the thing that comes to mind is uh, how will this affect things? We have an example that we can probably look to that's sort of similar, and it would be back in, what, 1971 or 72 when the NHL suddenly had the WHA startup, and yeah, Bobby yeah. Hull jumped to the WHA, and then a bunch of other guys, yeah. Bernie Perrant, and you know all these other guys started going to the WHA, and the one thing that it did instantly was drive up... Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe, absolutely. The amount of money players made suddenly went up because now there's competition. There's even more competition. Mm. And I could very easily see some changes coming to the PGA Tour. They're, they'll ride it out for a bit here to see if this thing survives before they you know, give any ground. But then I could very easily see that perhaps the purse has to go up or perhaps there's fewer tournaments because, you know, these guys are playing all the time and maybe they don't want to play that much. There, mm. If this thing is still here in four or five or six months, I, I absolutely think you could see that there could be some changes coming. All right, can't let you go without asking you about the Bulldogs. Obviously uh, having mm. a bit more difficult time with Windsor than the 22 straight wins before that. A series at 2-1 now, 7 o'clock tonight in Windsor, back here in Hamilton on Sunday. Your thoughts on what they have to do to, to gain control? Well, so, I mean, I wrote this the other day. One of the challenges Hamilton has right now, yeah, they won 22 in a row, and people say, wow, Windsor must be great. Windsor's a good team. But in the yeah. OHL, you're allowed to have three 20-year-olds on your team. Only three. And so those guys become absolutely essential. Those are your ringers. Those are your top guys. Those are your most important players. And Hamilton has, of course, three, like Windsor does, except two of Hamilton's three are hurt right now. And both of them are on defense. And that is just being such a problem for them right now because what you had was, I think, inarguably the best defense core in the league that's now mm-hmm. been thinned out, and they're still pretty good, but they're not what they were. And so what you really need is you hopefully get one of those guys or both back tonight so that you can start getting back to the team that you built. Because Windsor is an excellent team, and if they are taking on a disadvantage, I don't know if that's the right word, but a, a, a team that's missing key pieces, they can win. It's not, it's not, Hamilton, if you have everybody on the ice who's supposed to be on the ice, uh, in my opinion, Hamilton is the better team unquestionably and wins this series. But right now you don't. And so we will see if either of the two injured guys can get back on there and make a difference for them. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator talking about uh, golf and Bulldogs, Canadian Open and Bulldogs. Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Have a great weekend. Be well. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Will and Liz for producing today and Diane and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. It's Dominic here. Game four, Bulldogs. Let's go. I'll see you back here on Sunday. Woo! Yeah. There you go. With a real bulldog.